Um, this morning we're going to, we were one week away from finishing Acts 2. And this week we're going to take a little detour to Ephesians chapter 4. And so as we've heard the scriptures already, I invite us to, to listen again to the word of God from Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, This therefore I say and testify in the Lord, that you no longer walk, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, who having become callous, have given themselves over to unrestrained degeneracy for the working of every impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off with respect to your former manner of life the old man, the one being corrupted according to the cravings of deceit, but to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man, the one created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is the word of God. So Paul begins with this exhortation, this therefore I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. In the first verse of chapter 4, which again, we're not doing a series through chapter Ephesians, we're just jumping in right in the middle here. So it's, we have to re- remember that this therefore that he gives us is of course a reminder of the first three chapters of Ephesians and how we are to be constantly living our lives. Every day you get up out of bed in the morning and we have a reason for living, right? We have a reason for living the way we live, not just a reason for living, but a reason for living the way that we're called to live, the walk that we're called to walk. We're to live in light of those wonderful gospel truths that Paul unpacked for us in the first three chapters, the gospel truths that together reveal our calling. Because you're a called people, right? You, you have a calling. And it's a calling to something wonderful. Paul unpacks that calling in the first three chapters, and I'm just going to like, we're just going to read a bunch of them right here. We have been, brothers and sisters, we have been chosen. We have been adopted, redeemed, forgiven. Made an inheritance. We think of, we think of getting an inheritance, but we have been made an inheritance. We are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. We have been predestined, sealed, given an inheritance. We've been made alive and raised up and seated with Christ. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have been brought near, granted access in one spirit to the Father. We have been made to be members of God's household. This is what this is. This is the household of God. We've been made to be fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's three chapters all wrapped up in just a few short, succinct sentences, but it's worth going back and reading. Here in verse 17, then, Paul's therefore again, he's got another therefore, it reaches, it reaches all the way back to those first three chapters. 
And to all those glorious gospel truths via his therefore in verse 1. So you see both therefores. He's just reaching back again. And I just wanted to start out by asking then, what is your therefore? Well, what is it? I, I, I trust that we have one. That we have a therefore that we live our lives based upon all the time. It's because of what God has done, brothers and sisters, that he has called us to this holy calling. It's because of what he has accomplished, finished, and done. So rest in that. Rest secure in it. Rest at peace in that. And from that place of security and rest, blood, sweat, and tears, and striving with all of his power that he powerfully works within us. Are you owning your therefore daily? Well, Paul began in verse 1, I urge you therefore to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And, and when he described that work walking worthy, what does that look like? He describes it in terms of maybe a way that we wouldn't expect. When we think of walking worthy of your calling, we think of don't do all those bad things, right? That's how you walk worthy. And maybe we don't, and that's a good thing. But he defines this walking worthy as walking with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we, we cannot walk worthy apart from one another. We cannot fulfill our calling apart from each other. I cannot fulfill my calling myself by living this private, holy life. I'm called into holiness through love of my neighbor, love of my brother and sister. In fact, the entire first half of chapter 4 is all about the unity of the faith and the body of Christ building itself up in love. That's what it is to walk worthy. But now in verse 17, Paul considers this same theme of the Christian's walk. And you're walking today, right? You're sitting right now, but you're walking. You, you, you're engaged in the walk, even as we listen. He considers the same theme from the other side of the coin, as it were. We had the positive side, humility, love, unity, promoting the peace of the, of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. But now we have it on the other side where Paul says, This therefore I say in testifying the Lord, it's like a reprise, but from the other side, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. So here's kind of the negative side that you don't do. So there is that too. Don't do this, right? What we see here is that there's to be a basic, fundamental difference between how you live, how you walk, and how the Gentiles go about living life, how the unbelievers walk. If Paul urged and entreated us in verse 1, he said, I, I entreat you, I urge you. Now, in verse 17, notice, he solemnly declares and testifies in, in the Lord. That's pretty heavy stuff right there. That's very, very serious language. He says, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself is my witness and authority, I now declare and testify to you on a matter of the utmost importance. Immediately we can be convicted at how casually we can approach the matter of personal holiness when our Lord calls us to the utmost carefulness and soberness. Sometimes, again, it's difficult for us as Christians to, 
to keep the proper balance between the joy and the freedom and the peace that we have and that must never be compromised. And the call to the utmost care that we are to give to the living of our lives in holiness. This, therefore, I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in the understanding, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Paul is known, um, you know, again, God has inspired his holy word, infallible in every word and jot and tittle, but he did that through the human personalities of the authors. And Paul, if you read Paul and you get used to Paul, you begin to see things he does. Paul does and no one else does. One thing Paul does is he just piles, he piles up phrases to make his point. That's what he does here. The reason he would tell us the Gentiles live the way they live is because they're thinking, they're thinking, their thought processes have been twisted and distorted by sin. We often think of sin as in terms of just a choice I've made, or maybe even a desire I have. But sin goes to my very thoughts and thought processes, my reasonings. The Gentiles, Paul says, are unable to truly think God's thoughts after God's thoughts and God's ways as the foundational, the guiding principle for all of our life are as foreign to the unregenerate as a foreign language that sounds to us like nonsense. Now that'll help us to understand the world. It'll help us maybe not to be so uptight because God has told us that this is the way it is. It's what Paul means when he talks about the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And so again, not only does this give us insight into the world around us, and it helps us, because sometimes I think we, we want to expect better and expect more, right? And then when we see it going the direction it goes, it just really deflates us, and we, we become anxious, and we become worried. And God has told us, he has revealed to us the way things are. We can take comfort in the fact that he has, he has told us ahead of time. But we also are filled then with awe and amazement at this miracle of grace. We don't just, we don't just like, okay, well, that's okay, good, and write the world off, right? Because we were part of the world, and God has saved us out of the world. He has done a work in our hearts, and he is still working in the hearts of all those that he is calling to himself. So we are called to hope and triumph and optimism. Paul says in other places, though, in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds. And there's a reason he says minds. You could say blinded the hearts, but also the minds, the thinking of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, from comprehending the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. It, it is because the thought processes of our minds and hearts have been twisted and distorted by sin that we're unable to accept or comprehend God's ways. Now, we can look to the world for all this, can't we? But now, we need to start with ourselves, because even as Christians in whom sin still remains and still dwells, here's the reality, that God's ways may sometimes feel wrong to us. In fact, they do at times. Especially in those moments when we feel the greatest need to justify and prove my own thoughts and my own ways. There's this, there's this conflict that we still endure, that we still, that we still confront. We may give, and we, I trust that we probably do give lip service to the fact that his ways are right. But how often have we seen this happen? I, give, I rejoice in the fact that his ways are right until my heart is dead set on something else. And then I can't rejoice in that anymore. And then I cannot comprehend the rightness of his ways. And isn't there a sense in which we show this to be true every single time we choose our own way rather than God's? Why do, we ch- why do I choose my own way rather than God? Because I believe that my way is right and his way is not so good. Because of the sin that remains within us, my thoughts, my reasonings can still be twisted, distorted, turned upside down, inside out, so that now it's God's thoughts and ways that seem to be inside out and upside down. It happens. It happens all the time. Such as loving my enemy, praying for those who persecute me, being subject to authority, denying myself and taking up a cross. Or what about not slandering? Sometimes slandering just feels so right. Gossiping. In our Christian lives, we need to realize that our struggle is not just against our sinful actions and words. Sometimes we just focus in on don't do that, don't say that. But behind all of our doing and saying is our thinking. And we never stop thinking, do we? And it's the effects of sin on our thinking and reasoning on our ability to even see straight in the first place, brothers and sisters, that we need God to, to do a work in us. Our struggle is against the effects of sin on our ability to discern in your handout the truth, the beauty, and maybe I'll say the goodness of God's thoughts and God's ways. In, in philosophy, there's the true and the beautiful and the good. Those are the three words that, that a philosopher kind of focuses in on. What is the true? What is the beautiful? What is the good? As Christians, we don't have to be philosophers, right? We can just be theologians, as it were. We can read the scriptures and know what is the true, what is the beautiful, and what is the good. But how often do we not truly see the truth of the truth, the beauty of that which is beautiful, and the goodness of that which is good? It's because their thought process has been twisted, distorted, because they're unable to think God's thoughts after him that Gentiles live the way they do. Who, having become callous, have given themselves over to unrestrained degeneracy for the working of every impurity in greediness. Now, I don't know, again, oftentimes in the Bible you see these extreme pictures painted. And we read a picture like this and you're like, I don't know anyone like that. 
right? You might read about someone or know about them far away somewhere, but it's so extreme as to seem even exaggerated and unreal. But now I want us to ask you this question. Are we going to take the word of God seriously? And we have to ask, if we've taken verse 18 seriously, futile thinking, darkened understanding, alienation from the life of God, ignorance and hardness of heart, then doesn't verse 19 only make sense? It's true that because of God's common grace that he sheds abroad on everyone, on the whole world, most unbelievers, most Gentiles, are not living as sinfully as they could be living. But what Paul describes here in verse 19 is the end of the path that every unbeliever is on. That's a sobering thought. I just invite you to to consider that for a moment. Even those who are the most moral and self-reforming unbelievers in the world are on this path to this end that Paul described here. Pallets giving themselves over to unrestrained degeneracy for the working of every impurity in greediness. In the end, all of our attempts at a self-made morality are futile and empty. In the end, the unbeliever always abandons himself. And this is what you would have abandoned yourself, except for the calling of God graciously given on your life. To a tormented and hopeless pursuit of his own pleasure. Notice, notice what, we, what I said there, to the tormented and hopeless pursuit of his own pleasure. Indeed, it's a truly terrifying picture of hell. The pleasures of the world are ultimately a torment, even the pursuit of them in the end, which shows how strong are the deceits of the enemy. This is what Paul means when he speaks of unrestrained degeneracy for the working of every impurity and greediness. All of these words have sexual connotations. And Paul and other biblical writers, when they want to talk about the essence of sin, and of all sin, they often describe it in terms of sexual sin. In Romans, the result of futile thinking and darkened hearts is described in terms of women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves themselves the due penalty for their error. So what Paul is doing is he's looking at the sin of homosexuality and he's summing up in that sin not only every other kind of sexual sin, but also in your handout, all sin in general. As the pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction. What is, what is sin? What is your sin? Every sin you've ever committed. It's ultimately this pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction of whatever it is that feels right and good to me in that moment, irrespective of God's holy law. I need this, brothers and sisters. I need this. I need to see myself rightly. I need to see what God's word says about me. So all sin, whatever kind it may be, involves making myself God and then offering to myself the gifts and the sacrifices of that which feels good and right to me in the moment. 
verse 22, Paul speaks of the cravings of deceit. What are the cravings of deceit? What do you think he means by that? It's the cravings for every false promise of satisfaction, pleasure, and fulfillment. And once again, sexual connotations only meant to show us the true nature of all sin. All sin. Romans chapter 1, this self-idolizing, pleasure-seeking. You see that? That's, the, that's, that's, that's what's going on in all of us, even still as Christians, with the sin that remains within us. It's this self-idolizing, pleasure-seeking, which is the explanation not just for sexual immorality, but for all manner of unrighteousness, including and evil, including covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossiping, slandering, hating God, insolence, haughtiness, boastful inventing of evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Again, Paul's He's speaking of the unsaved Gentiles and the path that they're on, but the reason, the reason he's painting this dark, dark, dark picture for us is not for us to point the finger and say, oh, how bad everyone else is. What's the point? It is to warn us. That's why. It's to exhort you today. This, therefore, I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. And, you, and again, we don't turn away from this and say, well, good, I, don't, I know, I don't walk like that. No, what he's done is exposed the nature of all sin so that we see our sin, which we didn't think was so bad before, for just how horrific and bad and ugly it is. All of it is the self-idolizing pursuit of my own pleasure. Paul exhorts us then in light of the sin that still remains in us, the sin that still prevents me, Timothy, from fully thinking after God, his thoughts, the sin that justifies and rationalizes and is so good at justifying and rationalizing what feels good and right to me. And remember again, that's not just sexual lust. It could be anger. But sometimes anger feels really good. But have you ever noticed that while anger feels really good, it also feels really horrible? You feel trapped. You, feel, you, you know you're, you're, you're miserable in it. The pleasure of sin is its own torment. Bitterness and resentment. We feel good about bitterness, but bitterness is its own torment. Greed, covetousness, dishonesty, gossiping, slandering, disobedience to authority. We are all, every soul, every body in this room is an expert at rationalizing and explaining away the thoughts of God in order to justify and prove and support my own. In the end, if not sooner, then definitely later, the thinking and reasoning of every unbeliever will lead to the callous abandonment. It will. It will. For every unbeliever. To unrestrained degeneracy. For the working of every impurity and greediness. It's a terrible future. And as we've said a number of times already. 
the pleasure of sin is itself ultimately a torment. It is its own punishment. Now, I'm not saying that God does not have an additional punishment, but, but even sin itself carries within itself its own punishment. As terrible as that future is, though, God's judgment is just. As this is simply his abandoning, his giving over of sinners to their self-idolizing thoughts and desires. Now, I just want to confess to you that when I, when I preach this, sometimes I think, boy, that's a real downer. Why would I stand up here and say all that? I, 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 don't, get, I, I, don't, I don't get pleasure out of preaching this kind of stuff. Not, not in itself. But why do I say it? Because it's in the Word of God and because, because this sets us up for the next verse. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Did the name of Christ ever sound so beautiful to you? Right, when, you when you see the darkness and the filthiness and the ugliness of your sin and of the sin in the world around us, how can this not be true and good and beautiful? Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Oh, here is the key, brothers and sisters, to your holiness. In the Greek, the emphasis is on you. So we hear Paul saying, even as he writes it, but you. And we rejoice. Because by the sovereign, regenerating, saving grace of God, we not through any of our own merits, right? We, unworthy and undesirable as we were, we who were not better than anyone else and still are not better than anyone else, we have not been given over to the lusts and passions and cravings of deceit. We, you have not been given over to that. Oh, we, we, we so often, and thank God that he is merciful and he doesn't, he doesn't demand that we thank him truly and faithfully every single day for all that he's done because how many of us would be lost if he did? But how often are we mindful of what we have not been given over to? Paul warns and he cautions and he exhorts, but at the end of the day, he doesn't try to guilt us or scare us simply into no longer walking as the Gentiles walk. Instead, in your handout, and this is, I loved, I loved this. Instead, Paul contrasts, he means for you to see this awesome, amazing contrast between the ultimate torment of self-idolizing pleasure-seeking and the wonderful beauty of Christ himself in the gospel. The world could hear those two things set side by side and all they're going to see is the beauty of the self-idolizing pleasure-seeking. Brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of Christ? Paul says, you did not learn Christ in this way, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We have learned, contrary to what the world might say of a holy Christian, we have learned not just a set of rules and regulations, a holiness code. We have learned Christ, a person, a Savior, the Savior. We've learned Him. We've heard not just empty words. We've heard 
him speaking through the Spirit. Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me and they hear my voice. We have heard his voice and we have followed him. We have been taught in him. We have union, brothers and sisters, with the one who is not only our perfect righteousness imputed to us, but with the one who leads us now in the way. He takes us by the hand. He leads us in the way of that living, perfect example that he left for us, that he has given to you and to me. Only here in Ephesians does Paul refer to Jesus by that name. He refers to Christ and the Lord, but never to Jesus anywhere else in Ephesians except here. Because he's emphasizing here his humanity, that he truly was like you. That he was like me, and that he lived that life that God now calls you and me to live. You say, that's impossible. How can I live the life you live? Well, because you've learned him, because you're in him, because you've heard him. Jesus shows us what it is to find our pleasure in that which is the good pleasure of God. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's not the, that's not the stuffy words of some ultra-spiritual guy that's out of touch with me and the world. Those are the words of our Savior who died for us. And who calls us now to make it our food to do the will of the one who sent him. Jesus shows us what it looks like to deny our self-idolizing lusts and live for the true, lasting joys of God's blessing and favor. Do you see the contrast? Do you see that it's either one or the other? Let's not get let's not stuck in the, in this idea that there's this middle ground. I, I don't want to go off in the self-idolizing lusts, but but really living for the true and lasting joys of God's blessing and favor. Maybe I can find some place in the middle. No, in the Bible, here's the two things. Here they are. Jesus showed us what it looked like. He did it when we failed. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. What a beautiful Savior. Jesus didn't only give us a law. He did indeed give us a law. But he gave us his life, living and dying, And now he calls us to himself. He is our lawgiver, brothers and sisters. He is our lawgiver. But as our lawgiver, he calls us in the gospel to himself. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You say, we have learned Christ, right? What does Jesus say? Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In all of the self-idolizing pleasure-seeking of the world, we find no rest for our souls. True holiness and righteousness is not just a set of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts, is it? It is a life that has already been lived. It is a life that has already been lived by the one who calls us now to follow after him and walk in his footsteps. There's joy in that. 
That's not drudgery. It's not duty. It is duty. But it's joy. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, here's the thing. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of the faith you have. If you have faith today, it's because he authored it and he will perfect it. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can learn to truly think God's thoughts after him. Which is impossible to do in any other way. This is what we need in our struggle against sin. My struggle against sin is not just don't do that. It's not just don't say that. It's don't think that. It's my processes, my thought processes being turned back right side up and right side out. But you did not learn Christ in this way, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off with respect to your former manner of life, the old man, the one being corrupted according to the cravings of deceit, but to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, he keeps focusing on on the mind here. And to put on the new man, the one created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So these, these words we see, there's a whole wonderful kind of tension going on here. First of all, Paul assumes something about us that that we have already learned Christ. It's, it's accomplished. It's done. You learned him. You learned the Savior. We've already been taught to put off the old man. So when we learned Christ, we learned repentance. This is, we could define, we could describe this group of people here in all sorts of ways. Let's just describe you right now as a repentant people. We learned that being a Christian means a decisive, once for all, break with that person I used to be, with that old man, the man in Adam. I was the man in Adam. You were the woman in Adam. That's why it says the old man. That's why we don't say the old person, remember. We don't say the old person to make it like this gender-inclusive thing right here because the whole, the whole point of the old man, it was as the old Adam that we were in him. We had all sinned in him. That was our old identity. But now we have a new one. We are the new man in Christ. We're not the new... We're not the old man in that continual process of decay and death because of the cravings of deceit. It's not who we are anymore. That is gospel good news. Paul speaks of the old man as our former manner of life. But in Christ, the second Adam, we have put off the old man. It's not who we are. Furthermore, if we've already learned Christ, as Paul says we have, then my mind is already renewed. I've already been renewed in the spirit of my mind. We can sit here and listen to this and grasp it and, and make sense of it in a, in a faith-filled way. The futility of our minds in verse 17 to replace with renewed minds in 23. Our hard hearts, brothers and sisters, have been replaced with hearts of flesh. The darkness of my understanding with which I was blinded in have been replaced with light and my ignorance, which was, which was, not thinking of the word I want, but which I was accountable for, has been replaced with true knowledge of God. 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Finally, if we have already learned Christ, then we've already learned to put on the new man, the one created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So this is already, okay? This is all done. It's been done. So the new man is who we are right now in Christ. Let's just be clear about this, and this is something that not all Christians are clear about. In fact, sometimes it's taught the opposite. But we are not half old and half new. You are not half Adam and half in Christ. That is not true. We do not go furthermore. We do not go back and forth from being the new man in Christ one day and the next day being the old man in Adam. It is not what happened. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And then he says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, done once for all. The new has come. I skipped an important word. Behold, the new has come. That's the already. And you know where the already goes. We can't ever forget this already, though, because it guards us against despair, because we are still sinners and we still... We still fail. And we still self-idolize our pleasures in, in all sorts of ways. We need this already because it, it guards us from despair and fills us with a blessed, unquenchable hope. Because after all, there's still the not yet. There's still our daily struggle against sin. Paul understands that. That's why he's writing these verses, right? Paul knows the struggle of sin. It's why he says, don't no longer walk that way. The person I used to be in Adam was enslaved to sin because that's what being in Adam meant. To the cravings of deceit, I was enslaved to the self-idolizing, pleasuring, and satisfying of me. That's what I was enslaved to. The person that I am now in Christ no longer is enslaved to these things. I no longer am in a formal bondage relationship of bondage to sin. That has been utterly broken. Utterly broken. The person that I am now in Christ is created in God's likeness in righteousness and holiness of the truth, Paul said. And yet how often, okay, here's the mystery, because you know what? This is why people talk about perfectionism. This is why some traditions emphasize the reality that we should be able to reach perfection. Part of it, I can appreciate their point, because they don't understand, and it's a mystery still to me as well, how we can be all this already and still sin. Why? What is this sin that's still in me? What is this about? Why? It's a mystery. How often do I still say yes to sin? To its false promise of pleasure and satisfaction, a pleasure that is ultimately a torment 
is stupid. It's irrational. How often do we still allow our thinking and our reasoning to fall back into the old ways? Justifying what feels right in the moment rather than truly loving what God has said is good and right in his word. In the midst of the sad answer to that question, okay, and there's a sad answer we, for all of us, the new man that we are already guards us from despair. In your handout, this new man that we already are in Christ. Oh, those are the beautiful words, because where's our hope? Not in me, in Christ. Strengthening us, strengthens us to keep on pursuing the renewing of our what? Of our minds. Don't start with your actions. Don't start with your words. Start with our minds, our thinking, our hearts. But continuing to learn Christ. That's what we come here every week to do. Every single week, day in and day out, we come to learn Christ. Submitting ourselves to the teaching of the Spirit of Christ in and through the Word of Christ. As that Word, to use Paul's language, comes to dwell richly within us. Paul says in Romans and then in Colossians, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Put it to death, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, the old, the old Adam, right, with its, and have been, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in knowledge, in right thinking, and discerning what is true and good and beautiful after the image of its creator. We so often talk here about the tension between the already and the not yet. What we see here is that this is a tension that lives inside of you. It lives inside of all of us. In, in your handout, within us. And let me just say two things. What do, you, what do you think about that tension? There's a tension in how I think about the tension. Okay, because one of the things I think is, ah, I wish it was gone. I long for the day when the tension is no more. You know, you get mad almost. You just long for it. Take it away. Come, Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, we rejoice that the tension is ours today. There are multitudes of people who don't live with that tension. We do. And that's only because of the grace of God poured out on us. 
We rejoice then that we who once were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, we have now learned Christ, that we have now heard him and been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And it's precisely this reality that gives rise to the tension. If you hadn't learned Christ, you'd have no tension. So the tension is the sign that you're, you've learned Christ. The struggle is the sign that, that things are well. So when you're struggling, take heart. And it's precisely this tension then that keeps us always striving and longing for heaven. Rather than drive us to despair, we are strengthened and encouraged to be always confessing our sin. Look, there it is. What? Confess my sin? When I'm supposed to be holy? Yes, holiness in this life means confessing our sin, acknowledging that we're not yet. And to be always striving after that all-satisfying holiness, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's so wonderful to be able to speak of holiness as that all-satisfying holiness. When we hear the word holiness, is that something that just thrills your soul? Holiness. Is it something that causes you to be satisfied? And that all-satisfying holiness, what is it? It is Christ in me. And what is Christ in me? That is the hope of glory. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. And we won't always be being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There's so many things, there's so many ways to exhort, to comfort. We all need different things. Maybe different people here need different things in this moment. Maybe you need comfort. Be comforted in your struggle. Knowing what God has done in Christ. Be reminded that you've been called not to a list and to a, to a set of, of, of regulations, as it were. No, there are rules we are called to obey. But those rules have been given to us by an all-sufficient, loving Savior, Jesus Christ. We have learned Him. We have learned Him. Keep on learning Him. Right. Keep on learning him. Keep on hearing him. Maybe, though, we need to be convicted. Maybe we have, we have tried to camp out in the middle between the extremes of self-idolizing pleasure-seeking and truly putting on that new man which is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What are the ways that we have in our thinking and our thought processes been justifying and rationalizing perhaps the daily choices I make? Let us pray that we learn Christ. Let us pray that we learn to think God's thought after him and be delivered from the ignorance 
that is, that is in us, that can remain in us. I simply would ask you then, have you learned Christ? Have you heard him and been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus? And if so, then now you can hear these words come to you, not as empty law, but as gospel law. Let us daily put off, with respect to our former manner of life, the old man, the one being corrupted according to the cravings of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and put on the new man, the one created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Would you pray, pray with me? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we come to you in awe, rejoicing at, the, at the, what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And we come in awe and rejoicing that we're able to see and know that which is true and good and beautiful, that which, that which the world would call ugly. We have seen to be beautiful. Lord, deliver us, we pray, by your working of your spirit within us from the sinful rationalizing of our actions and words. We confess to you our sin and its true ugliness that all of it, of whatever kind, is the self idolizing pursuit of my own pleasure. The cravings of deceit. Let us see, let me see my sin. Let us see our sin for what it is that we might see in Christ an all-sufficient beauty and goodness that we might see in holiness, which is Christ in us, that which is joyful, glad, and all satisfied. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that washes us clean, that cleanses us, that takes away our guilt, that pardons and that gives us a sure and certain hope. Thank you that he did it all. That it was his blood that was shed. We thank you for this meal that we can partake of together. I pray that you help us as we sing these songs to faithfully, gladly prepare our hearts to take together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.